0: of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, we're going to ask that you'd open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We begin a new series this morning, uh, going through verse by verse uh, through James, and i uh, I charted out most of that the other day as far as just praying through where the breaks were and how much I would try to tackle. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to keep to that 100%. But uh, just trying to get to James chapter 4 took us all the way to September. So so this is going to be, a, this, you know, just know that we're going to be here for a while and you can study it during the week and you can ponder upon it. You can look upon it and uh, just see what God has for you. But this morning... I'm going to give you the warning that I've given for years now, whenever we started a brand new Bible study, and that was that when you begin something brand new, there's a lot more information than inspiration. I pray that there's not, you know, that there will be some inspiration this morning, that you'll go out of here knowing that you've heard from God's word, but... Really, when you start a book, you want to know the context of that. Context is everything. Would you agree that not just biblically, but even sometimes somebody said, well, you said, have you ever been quoted by somebody before, a husband or wife? And you're going, look, you're just taking that out of context. Yes, I said those words, but it doesn't fit the context. You're you're applying it in a whole different way. Well, easily we could do that with the word of God, and people do it all the time. James is one of those especially that you could do that. And you could come away from the book of James thinking, my goodness, this is all about just working for your salvation. And it is nothing like that. In fact, that's uh, been pretty much kind of the uh, hit against James. Do you know that some of the early church fathers, uh, theologians over time, they kind of stood at arm's length from James? And for a couple reasons. One of those is simply because we don't see a lot of doctrine. It's a very practical book. And the very practical nature of it is why some people say, hey, James, that's my favorite book of the Bible. In fact, some of you have shared that even in this past week when we, you knew that we were going to go through James. And you said, I, I love James. Well, I'm one of those that I love James, too, because I like practical. But some of the early church fathers and even people like Martin Luther, have you heard that name, Martin Luther, before the Reformer? Uh, he was at arm's length. He called it a strawly epistle epistle. In other words, he said it's kind of, you know, it's not very strong. Uh, the rest of that was he said it was a strawly epistle in comparison to Romans and Ephesians. And I would say that just about any book of the Bible is a straw epistle compared to Romans and Ephesians because it's all doctrinal. And yet where Luther was coming from, you've got to remember even the context of what he's doing. He's fighting against, you know, the, the people of that day, the religious leaders of that day, that said, okay, justification, our justification before a holy God, comes by works, And they would even quote a couple things from James, out of context, and, and that would be the substantiation. So, so Luther kind of stood at arm's length of this book in the beginning. Later on, he was a little bit more agreeable to that, but it's one of those things that it is a practical book. Out of the 108 verses, there are 60, what we call imperatives, uh, and... Uh, uh, Commands where God says, okay, do this. For example, when it says, okay, basically to be quick to listen and slow to speak. It's a command. And I said, okay, be quick to listen, quick to listen to people, but slow to speak. And Andy and I were talking this morning. I said, you know, a lot of this is almost like the Proverbs of the New Testament. If you go back to Proverbs, You don't have to necessarily be a Christian to live out some of those things and say, that's just smart. And would you agree that that's pretty smart to be quick to listen and slow to speak? In fact, how many of y'all have mastered that? That's what I thought, you know? And so James comes in here and he adds a lot of, if you want to say, you know, this is how you live out your faith. It's a very, very practical book. And in no time does he try to say, That, you know, we're earning our salvation because we're good people. And that the better you become, the more a Christian you become. Let let me start from the very beginning. There's only one way that you become a Christian, folks. And it is not the moral code by which you live. And your ability to achieve morality through that moral code comes through the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ. That he lived and he died and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And that he rose in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And when we put our faith and our trust that that work and that work alone has redeemed us to a holy God that has paid the fullness of all of our sin, that is salvation. You didn't do 99.9% and he says, okay, Jeff, can you top this off? I'm looking for three or four good works. No, he doesn't say that. He said, I've done everything. James picks up here with, with the thought of that real faith, a life-changing faith, transforming faith, makes a difference in your life. I cannot imagine, I had a wedding Friday night, I cannot imagine a couple coming back to me after a year of, of being married, five years, ten years after marriage. I said, you know, our lives have not changed at all. Then I said, then you are not doing this marriage thing correctly. Because I just pronounced Friday night, two became what? One. And there is a blessing in two becoming one, but would you say that there is a challenge of two becoming one? Yeah. mean you took two opinions, and now, not that you're only going to have one opinion, but you have to marry those. Gonna, and, and so marriage, if it really is a good marriage, it means that it's, it's, it's kind of a struggle at times. It's, it's, there's a practical outcome. I mean, even when I sit down and do financial counseling with young couples, I said, okay, you're going to have one or two checkbooks. And I'll never forget, I was sitting there, and at the, like in stereo, these, this couple, she said two, and he said one. And then they looked at each other, and I just looked at both of them and stood back. And they were adamant about She goes, I want two because I make my own money. And I, want the, and I said, well, we're going to add another session on. It's talking about coming from, from me to we, and that there's this transition. Well, if you've been married, if you're married, you know about that. That sometimes it's smooth, sometimes it's joyous, sometimes it's really hard. Well, that's where James is coming. More than likely, James is the first book of the New Testament as far as chronologically. That's debatable. We don't know. They didn't write at the bottom of the original autographs that is the original letter. You know, they may have had that, but we don't have that original autograph. But most scholars would agree that it is one of the first, if not the first, book of the Bible. And I think it fits in perfectly there. So it would have come even before the Gospels. It would have come before a lot of the the Pauline epistles and everything. And and that James is trying to give us, you know, kind of Christianity 101. How do you do this, Christian? What does it look like? And so there's a part of that that makes it very, very practical. It's very nuts and bolts and very black and white. Uh, maybe the cornerstone, if, if you had one verse that just kind of explains the whole rest of the book, the letter, the epistle, it's James 1.22. This kind of captures the spirit of this book. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Sometimes we leave off that little last part, and it's a very important part. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And, and that's true. And it, if he stopped right there, that would still be truth. But that last little part is very important, that deceiving yourself. That, that, that's what he's trying to say. Look, when, when you're just kind of talking the talk but not walking the walk, man, number one, you're not fooling anybody except yourself. And so at times when James steps on your feet, uh, when we hear something like be slow to speak, but be really quick to listen, when we hear something like that, and we're going, man, that's right where I live. That's exactly what I need to deal with this week. And and this, you know, growing in maturity in Jesus Christ, he's not doing it because he's the school teacher going, okay, by all this obedience, and by getting better and better, God's going to love you more. No, he's just saying, hey, look, the transformed heart and mind what is it being transformed to? I personally believe a lot of people think that Paul and, and James kind of have you know, opposing sides. I think that they are a perfect complement one to the other. I think God has put James in there as much as he's put Romans. Because when I read Romans, I see the same thing. It's coming from a whole different vantage point, a doctrinal vantage point. But Romans 12, one and 2, when it talks about the transforming of your mind, so what? So that we can live out God's will. Isn't that what James is saying? That you know, as if you're living out God's will for your life, if you're living out, you know, the Christian life, this transformation is taking place. What are you becoming like? Are you becoming more like the world? Becoming more like an improved version of humanity? Are you becoming more like Christ? So that's your choices today, guys. As you live out today, that's our choices that are before us. That become more like humanity more like the culture or to become more like Christ. And Paul tells us very specifically that the goal of the Christian life as far as when we're living here that that what God is ever working in our lives Romans 8.28 that we love to quote but leaving off verse 29 that all things are going to be worked to good. You know, He tells us in verse 29 what this working is toward. Conformity more and more conforming more and more to the image of Christ. That this working that god is doing isn't man see so you're a little short on the money this week let me work some things and you win the lottery that's not what romans eight twenty eight means doesn't mean that you've had this physical pain and that you're going to find the right doctor and that it goes away i hope that it does that verse wouldn't be against that but that's not what it means that god is working all things in the life of the christian for two reasons for his glory And for our good. And what is that good? That more and more and more we are thinking, we are believing, and we are acting more like Christ. Now let's do a little test real quick. What is your opinion? When you see somebody who speaks a lot about Christ and yet there is no fruit in their life, I mean, if anything, there's, it, there's fruit, but it's spoiled fruit. It's rotten fruit. It's bad fruit. I mean, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Hypocrite. You know, man, that, I don't know that that guy's really a believer, that she's really a believer. Can you believe that he calls him? Have you ever either said this out loud or thought this, and he calls himself a Christian? I mean, have you ever done that? So so we have this little detector in our own heart and mind that says, okay, this is, if someone's going to call themselves Christian, this is kind of what they should look like. And when we have opposing views of that, not that we know anybody. I don't know anybody's salvation in here. I'm trusting the Lord on that, that you have believed upon the work of Christ. I don't know who's saved and who's not. But I can see by the way that many of you live your lives, I said that would not be normal for them to live in such a way had they not trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because the fruit that's coming out of your life is one of belief. Are you perfect? No, nobody's perfect. And yet we see this fruit coming out. And, and so in, in our own little evaluation this morning, our own little study, what we, we admit we're the first ones to say that when we say a walk and a talk that seem to disagree, that in our mind, whether we say it out loud or not, that we kind of go, there's just something wrong about that. Well, James is not trying to give names. He's not trying to, uh, uh, to, to call everybody hypocrites. He's just trying to say, uh, hey, look, when a transformed mind and heart begins, this is how you start to live. And here's some guides to, to, to live by. Very much as we get into this word, as we begin to see, as Ephesians said, I know Paul himself in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that were saved by grace through faith. Salvation only comes by grace, right? But what did he say in verse 10 that we looked at two weeks ago about this calling? I've called you now that you're saved only by grace. I've called you to a work. There's a calling upon your life. So James, to me, is just living out Ephesians 2:10. 10. There's, you're not going to find a lot of doctrine you're not going to find the mention of the gospel in here. And that's what really offends some people. Because where's the gospel in James? I'm kind of trusting that God says, okay, the gospel is going to be clearly covered in this letter, this letter, this letter, and this letter, and this one. And so here, here's a, I'm going to get James to do something that's pretty practical here. And I'm just believing that God's going to write our New Testament and write our Bible in a way that he designed and he purposed. And so what we're going to find here is a very practical book. And uh, if look in the, verse, the very first verse there. Let's begin with James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. But well, one reason it's going to take us past September to go, that's all we're going to handle this morning. And, and I, I know, I mean, next week, Mother's Day, I truly believe that God just lined that up. Because if there's, I hope this comes out right. My wife will tell me if it did or not afterwards uh, in, in a loving way. I mean, she, she's always helpful. Um, it's not that men don't count it all joy or that we have an easier time. It's just that we segment things. We're waffles. And so we're able to put, okay, I'm kind of upset about this. Let me file this under tomorrow. My wife doesn't do that. She files it under now. Everything that's going on is going on now. It's when the uniqueness. And there's not a good or a better, it's just a different, okay? So next week for Mother's Day, we get into count it all joy, even when you're going through this. I think that's probably one of the most wonderful Mother's Day's message lining up because I know that this can be a challenge to, to, to all of us as Christians, but I think females especially. Because you are those plates of spaghetti where every noodle touches every other thing in your life. Guys are truly the only ones that can say, what are you thinking about? Nothing. And really be honest. I mean, we, we are the, there are times that we, what are you thinking about? Nothing. And, and most of them, women, you never think of nothing. There is always something going on in your mind. So next week, we're going to get into that. And I didn't want to approach that. Plus, there's more than enough here. I still feel like I'm going to leave 99% of of verse 1 on the table before we we go. But what we see here is that uh, the first question that comes up is, who is this James? James was a familiar name in the Bible. It was, uh, we see a lot of different James. But really, it comes down to uh, just one or two options there. Most theologians, most scholars agree that this is James, the brother, or you could say, the half-brother of Christ, okay? We know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. It says that back in the Gospels that, uh, you know, that Mary did have uh, children afterwards. Mary and Joseph had children. Uh, I do know that there are some denominations that believe that Mary stayed virgin for the rest of her life. Uh, we don't see that biblically. It just doesn't line up with the, the Word of God here and that there are brothers and that there are sisters, but they're not believers, what we see about these brothers is, is that uh, they have some speculation. I, I've always wondered, can you imagine being a brother of Jesus? I mean, the literal brother of Jesus. And, you know, you're getting in trouble every other hour. And Jesus never gets in trouble. I mean, would you want to be the brother or the sister of Jesus? Why can't you just be a little bit more like Jesus, your brother Jesus? I mean, how many times did Mary say that? Why can't you just be a little bit more like your brother? I mean, I can only imagine that other brothers and sisters are going, yeah, If I hear that one more time. And yet, we know that he had real brothers. He, he's, they saw them 24-7. Uh, they sh- shared chores with them, uh, ate meals with them. And so when Jesus comes out and he starts proclaiming that he is the Messiah, family members, not so much Mary, she's affirmed that in her heart, but the brothers and sisters, they're struggling with that. And we see that throughout the scriptures. And... Uh, one of those. Look in John five. Uh, I'm sorry, John seven five. This is the time if you've read all of chapter seven. Uh, they're really saying, okay, Jesus, if you really are this Messiah, go out there and start proclaiming it. Jesus was uh, very particular about his ministry. There were places that he went, and there was places that he did not go. And we see in verse five after we read this opening of the the brothers trying to say, okay, look, why don't you just do more stuff? Why don't you show yourself the Messiah? And then we get this verse 5. That kind of sums up their heart and their belief. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus is there. They hear his claim that he's the Messiah, and they don't believe. In fact, when we start to piece together what little evidence we have about this, uh, we do believe that his family members, not Mary, but others, believe that Jesus was a little bit crazy. And that James, the one who's writing this letter years later, might have been one of those. Look what it says in Mark 3.21. We're taking just little bits of evidence of what we know about James, about the brothers and sisters of Christ, and kind of how they felt about Jesus proclaiming that he was the Messiah. Mark 3.21. And when his family heard it, that was this proclamation that he's the Messiah. They went out to seize him, for they were saying what? He's out of his mind. James very much is a skeptic. And yet he's writing this book, and you're wondering okay, how did he begin to believe? How did he go from a skeptic to this person who actually gets the privilege of writing a book that we have in our Bible? And the answer is, is really one thing the resurrection. More than likely, even though we don't have scripture that would back this up, I I cannot understand how this could not have happened as a family member that very much James would have been there when Jesus was crucified, the trial, the crucifixion, the burial, and and then to, to be a part of the resurrection afterwards. And that was the turning point for him. Up to that point, every time that he heard that Jesus proclaimed that he was the Messiah, there was that natural question of, you know, I shared a bed with you. I, I really don't think that you're the Messiah. You know, you, you, you kicked me in your sleep a couple of times. You know, would the Messiah do that? And he looked at it from such an earthly level that it was really hard for the brothers and sisters to grasp this. What was the one thing that made a change? He knew that his brother was in that grave for three days, and then he saw his brother alive again. Folks, that's what it comes down to. I mean, that's really the power of the gospel. It's not that Jesus died for you and that it ends there, but that he rose again. That is God's proclamation that I have victory over sin, death, and the grave. If we just have somebody dying for us, then we have a hero. When we have somebody who died for us that rose again, we have a savior. There's a big difference. Men and women have fought in wars and died for me. Maybe not, Maybe they didn't think Bobby Lincoln, but there's been men and women in our armed forces that have laid down their life for what they believed in, for freedom, for the freedom of our country. I have had many people who gave their life for me and for you, but only one who gave their life specifically for my sin and for my freedom over sin and came back and lived again. That's the difference between a hero and a messiah. And I believe that when James really began to to understand that, when he saw the risen Christ, that that's when it began to really kind of hit upon him. Man, he's just who he said he was. And we see this change in this belief. He starts off, James, a servant of God. I'm not a big name dropper, but I'm not beyond it. If you'll get me a $20 discount, I'll drop a name. Had AC problems the other day. The guy comes out. I said, yeah, Seth Odom. Do you know Seth? Yeah, Seth and I are good friends. Uh, how good of friends? You know, 10%, 20%. How good of friends are? You know, I'm not beyond, you know, that, I think that's part of that human motivation that if you know someone that can kind of get your foot in the door a little bit or get you a little bit better job, and yet, when we come to James 1.1, 1, 1, how does James identify himself? I mean, what would have been the most natural, name-dropping? James, the brother who grew up right beside Jesus. I'm writing, I have this kind of clout, I have this on my resume. And yet, what does he choose to say? James, a servant of God under the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was that his identity? Because there was a transformation. There was a spiritual transformation from seeing things on a human level to seeing things on a spiritual level. And all of a sudden he calls himself a, a servant. He goes from skeptic to servant. Why? Because of the power of the resurrection. Now, why do I make such a big deal about him introducing himself as a servant rather than the brother of Christ. Because I really do think that it sets up the whole rest of the book. I think that when you start with verse 2 of chapter 1, on to the rest, that that's the approach. James is not coming because of kinship in the sense of, uh, you know, that they had the same mother. He's not coming from a point, hey, I have an inside track here. He's coming from a changed and transformed heart and mind. Salvation, just as you and I can have, that transformation of our hearts and our lives. And he's saying, look, okay, if you're truly transformed, if Christ has truly come in, if you truly believe that he's the Messiah, that he died for you and that he's risen again for you, and you truly have had that transformation, then there's going to be a change in your life. You stand there and say, do you take this woman? Do you take this man? I do, I do. There's going to be a change in your life. If it's worth something, it's going to be a change. I also believe that it takes this transformed mind and heart to really digest what is what James is saying. If not, then, then we can become a, a lot of Pharisees. And when you say, look, this is what the word says, boom, boom, boom. And we can just kind of extrapolate out of James all these commands. And say, so, okay, you're a good person if you do these things. You're a bad person if you don't. That's not really where... James is coming. He's not measuring goodness or badness. He's measuring by, uh, the, the, the authenticity of one statement as a follower of Christ. And so I think that he uses that word servant on purpose. He's not trying to say that works can save you. He's not trying to say that you go to heaven if you're a really good person. He says, here's what transformed life in Christ looks like. Who is he writing to? The church. It says the 12 tribes. What does that make you think of? Old Testament, the Jewish people. And certainly as the pastor, James was the pastor. He was probably the first mega pastor, to use modern terminology. He pastored the church in Jerusalem. It would have been the biggest church. And depending on when this was written, whether it was in the mid-40s, uh, which much, many of the scholars believe that the church would have already been big, whether it already had a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people in it or not, again, is some speculation. But when he writes to these 12 tribes, he, he really is writing to the followers of God and the followers of Christ. He's not trying to say just Jewish people. Already there were Gentile, Gentile believers. And so he's writing to these believers, probably mostly Jewish, and he comes back, and he begins to say, okay, you know, here's the evidence of the transformed life. Look in chapter 2. We're going to kind of skip ahead just a little bit because I'm going to give you an example of what James is trying to propose here. This is a good example of the kind of logic that James is using to make his case. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, anywhere in that verse, look at it real close. Anywhere in that verse does he say you're saved by works? No. James never said that. I really believe he gets kind of a, a, a bum deal there by, oh man, that James, he's all about works. You can be saved by works. He never says that you're saved by works. What does he say? That faith. He's talking about saving faith. If you truly have been saved in this faith of believing in Christ and there's a transformed heart and a transformed mind, he said, it's just going to show in the way that you live your life. How can you say that you have saving faith and you never change? You've been justified and you're going to go straight from justification to glorification with no sanctification? It just doesn't line up. Look what he says in the next verse. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? He said, guys, if you just want to get all spiritual about it, you just want to think that this is just a religion that we practice, and you can go around going, oh, you're hungry, sorry, bless you but you have food and you don't give them. he said, well, what's what's Christ-like about that? He's not saying you become Christ-like. You become a Christian because you do that. He says because you are Christ-like, because now the very Spirit of God is in you, because you've been transformed spiritually, you're just going to want to kind of make a difference in the lives of people. You're going to act and think and do what Christ did. To James, it really wasn't difficult to understand. Real faith results in real action. And so as we go through this book in the next couple months, what we're going to struggle with from time to time is the old human dilemma that, okay, here's four things I need to go do this week. And that somehow if I do those four things this week, God is going to love me more. Through Christ... God loves you as much as you can be loved. He took all of your sin and he gave you his righteousness. The great exchange. If we understand that theologically, God looks upon you, not just as if you have no sin, but he looks upon you as if you have done everything right. You're going, but I know I have it. Yeah, we realize that. That's how miraculous the salvation is through Christ. So, those feelings that we get that, okay, man, I had a bad day. I yelled at my wife, I kicked the neighbor's dog, I did this. You know, I just, man, I was just, you know, struggling. And God can't be very happy with it. No, God's not happy with anything that's rebellious or sin, but he doesn't love you less. It's, it's just this phenomenal thing that we cannot even imagine because every relationship we have on earth, every relationship that we have on earth is very much one of those that is a dependent relationship on performance. Try not coming into work this week and say, but I live by grace. They said, yeah, but you better live on another paycheck because we're not going to pay for it. You know, you may live by grace, but, you know, you just don't come in and go when you want to. Every other relationship, e- even the parenting one, the, the closest I've ever come to understand one that is more grace-warning than anything else is parent to child. That You just love your children. You're not always happy with your children, but you love your children. You don't unlove them because they did something that was unimproving, but you're not happy about it. But even that unhappiness isn't because, you know, they're just, they're just like their dad. No, it's not even that. It's you don't want them to hurt. And you know that if they cheated on a test or they lied about this or they did that, it's not that you're just, man, I've got the worst kids in the world. No, you know that that's not good for them in the long run. So even that has a, an amount of sincerity to it. Nowhere will we find that God loves you more because you do these things. But what we are going to find in the coming weeks is that God calls us to a a way of living out, truly a light on a hill, truly difference, a transformed mind and heart that you just can't help but think this way now. Why? Because you're a better person? No, because the living God lives in your heart. Think about it. How could you... This is James proposal, how could you not think differently? How could you not act differently if holy God invaded your heart and your mind? How could you be the same? How could you ever be the same? This morning, one question to leave you with to kind of ponder and, and think about this week. Who or what identifies you? Well, what's the major identifier of your life? Mom? Dad? Husband wife? Successful businessman? Student? What is Here, James, out of all the identities that he could bring on, especially brother, he, he chooses servant. He says, you know, if, if I want to have one identifier in my life, I, I want to be known as a servant of this God who saved me, who chose me, and has saved me. I want you to think about this week. Because there's a lot of identifiers. I identify them. My, my girls are here today, so I am proud to be daddy today. I'm proud to be daddy any day, but especially when my girls are here. I've got a friend that I've known for years. She's a, been a blessing in, in my life. So I'm, I'm glad to be known as friend or pastor, as husband. A lot of different things. One that is challenging to me is to be identified as servant. You know what that means? Because it means I'm going to have to take myself off the throne of my own life. And then I'm going to have to get the rightful place to whom it belongs to, Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. I think every Christian longs to be known as a servant. But as I heard somebody say a long time ago, we just don't like the service part. we, We love the name servant. We just don't like to really have to serve somebody. And so James makes us think this morning. He goes, hey, here's my identifier. You can call me whatever you want to. But what I'd prefer to be known as is servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. And, Father, there are many things that identify us, and they're not bad and evil. I am proud to be a father. I'm proud to be a husband. I'm proud to be a pastor. I'm proud of, of, to be a friend. And yet, Father, I look at what James wrote in this very first verse, and Father, I know that I would have been tempted to write Bobby, brother of Jesus, had that been my uh, familiar position in that family. And so, Father, I thank you for the instruction that you give us, even in this one verse as we just start this study, that that really begins to shed light of what James is going to say for the whole rest of the, the other 107 verses. That he's coming, yes, as a pastor, but he's coming as your servant. And that a life bowed down to you is a a transformed life. Father, we're not going to understand the fullness of all these instructions, of all this that we find in James, apart from this relationship with you and this servant relationship. And so, Father, I pray, would you give us servant hearts this morning? Father, would you allow us to truthfully, honestly evaluate what identifies us and how we identify ourselves? And and Father, would you help us to develop a a longing, a a, uh, desire to be known as a servant of the living God. We love you today, Father. You've been gracious to us. And Father, even though we've uh, covered more of the historical part and kind of the foundational part, Father, I pray that you truly would inspire us as we would come and, and then leave in just a moment. That, Father, you would trigger in our hearts and our lives things that we just need to know, to trust you more, to grow in Christ-likeness, and to love on this world and show them what transformed life really looks like. So, Father, we thank you that you've given us this privilege. Father, you work now as we reflect during this time this song. We open up, Father, this altar of prayer before you, and we just ask that you would help us to respond, whether it's in our seats, whether it's at the altar, whatever it might be, Father, create in us responding hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today.